0: The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington.
1: All right, we're still uh, uh, trying to wrap our minds around the issue of the Kingdom of Heaven. And just by way of a bit of review we realize that the word heaven in the phrase kingdom of heaven is a reference to God. So it's a circumlocution or a substitute word for God because in the time of Yeshua, as in our times, and as far as we know in ancient history amongst the Jewish people, there was a hesitancy to pronounce the name of God. And so perhaps this would have been the kingdom of yod Vavhe, vav He and instead they, they substituted the word heaven, uh, which was, like other terms, a reference to God without actually pronouncing the name of God. And so, kingdom of heaven is not talking about a location where this kingdom is, as though the kingdom is up in the air somewhere. There's no doubt about the fact that uh, the scriptures indicate the dwelling and presence of God's glory uh, abides above us in the heights when yeshua left it says he ascended into the clouds and it says he will come uh, back as as he went and paul talks about the fact that we will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the lord in the air but as we as we talked uh, uh, about this last week I, I just remind you that we have to unwrap ourselves from the prevailing notion that the eternal existence of the saints or those who are holy or those who are saved is some celestial other earth, you know, outer space kind of uh, uh, situation. The scriptures, I don't think uh, need to be or really should be interpreted that way. What we have instead is um, the kingdom of God coming up. Upon this earth, and we have that in the Book of Revelation. There's no reason to create a new heavens and a new earth if the new earth is not going to have a function. And it appears very clearly in the Scriptures that the creation of the new heavens and the new earth involve the dwelling of God's people upon this new earth. So, I this is what I term the incarnational principle as over against the cathedral principle. The cathedral principle in Christianity, especially in the Middle Ages and onward, was the sense that it was needful for Christians to cause their soul to ascend unto God. And so that was the reason cathedrals, when you walked into a cathedral, you were in a um, an atmosphere that was entirely unlike, entirely different than anything you experienced during the week. During the week, you were amongst common folks in common places and common homes. When you went to church on Sunday, you went to a cathedral, and it was to, shall we say, help you practice the ascent of the soul away from this world, away from the the doldrums and the negativity of this world, away from the pain and sickness and so forth of this world. And that's why you had professional singers. That's why you had professional artists, so that when you walked into this cathedral, you as it were, stepped into a bit of the celestial palace for which you hoped in the future. Um, the synagogue was nothing like that whatsoever. Still isn't. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a building or a meeting place that's that's uh, beautiful. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if you uh, have occasion to be in Jerusalem even today and you go into most of the synagogues, there are a few that are pretty large, like the great synagogue, but uh, most of the synagogues are small little You know, two, three-room buildings that look just like anything else. Um, The incarnational principle is that God comes to dwell with us. The cathedral principle is that we leave to go dwell with God. And it appears to me that the kingdom of God is in the sphere of not us leaving to go dwell somewhere else, but God coming and making his permanent dwelling amongst men. Now, we know that the incarnation of Yeshua in, in his birth was, that, uh, was the first or the dawning of that, uh, d- that permanent dwelling. Why do I say that? Because he was only here for a relatively short time and then left. The reason is, is because when he became man, he, became, he, he took on the form of a man and would never change that form. He, he forever will be the man Yeshua. It is not in any way that he gave up his deity, but in the mystery of that, the incarnate one is forever in the form of a man. And so there's a sense in which his dwelling amongst us took on eternal dimensions in his incarnation. And uh, what we read in the prophets is that ultimately God is going to bring his people uh, to the kingdom in the sense of his coming to dwell with uh, with us, and that will have no end. So, I hope I haven't dashed anybody's uh, fairy tale hopes of flying through the air with harps and lighting on clouds and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I honestly think that the world to come will be very much like our existence here, with the great exception that that two things will be missing: time and Everything related to sin. And with one very uh, super important thing, and that is we will dwell in the very presence of the Almighty with Yeshua uh, with us. So all the things that you... And this is why I think it's so important uh, from an incarnational principle rather than a cathedral principle. You know, not to overuse the phrase, but to seize the moment. In other words... When in our lives we have those moments of great joy, you know why God gives us those? Because that is a foretaste of what we will be experiencing in the world to come. And when where do we find those those great times of joy? It as Kohel teaches us, it is not primarily in the buying of new things, although that can give us joy. But ultimately the things that we find that give us the most joy are the relational Issues of family of community you know it 's the husband and wife relationship it 's enjoying the wife of your youth it 's rejoicing in 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 her and and she in you it 's uh, the hug from a, a child it 's the uh, it 's the laughter that happens around a table uh, when you eat it 's those kinds of things that are small foretaste of eternity yeah that 's what the real thing is in the world to come. Is the joy that that is therefore uninterrupted, which now we you know we we have to go back to the toil of our work because our work is not always pleasant, even though work sometimes is very pleasant. So you know what will it be like to garden without weeds? You know, I mean, you, won't you miss pulling the weeds? Maybe God will let you grow some weeds occasionally. Just well, you know, the question is, how how could we garden if there isn't death? Well, uh, that's an interesting uh, point. There, there there will not be the death of the soul uh the death of the body uh but i don't know that there w- won't be uh the ongoing cycle of life uh with the plants i don't know I, I, there's you know who, who knows cs lewis has a lot of speculations on these things um but but it does cause to cause us to ask what do, what what gives me the greatest joy you know if if chocolate gives you the greatest joy maybe you should think maybe you should think more more deeply i don't know but i am sure if you want chocolate in in the world to come that you know i i i don't think that will be a, that will be a problem unless of course we are so changed isn't it interesting to speculate speculate about the world to come maybe we'll be so changed in, in our desires and our abilities that we will honestly long for and love health food you know and and we just won't like that stuff that's bad for us, it just won't appeal to us, or, or maybe it won't. Well, see, that's, the question is well, Maybe it won't be bad for you. I know we're off on a bit of a tangent here, but yeah. But but maybe there's, no, but, you know, the idea that there's no sickness, so maybe we can eat whatever we want to. But maybe it's the other way around. Maybe there's no sickness because we finally eat what God wants us to, and we know that, and we don't have any trouble conforming to that. We have no problem with self-discipline. We can say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. That would be bad for us. I mean, I can still imagine that there, why wouldn't there be, a, 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 you know, I don't know. It just seems to me that there might be things in the world to come that are not not food for us. You know, there might be dirt. I, I just don't think that's what he intends us to eat. But dirt has a good function. So um, the kingdom of God begins with the rule of God uh, on this earth and it, and it comes to fruition with the complete rule of God upon this earth is there ever a time when God is not ruling, of course not and yet in, su- in his in, in the mystery of his wisdom he has determined that, th- that there should be within our universe the, the contrary force of evil he is not responsible for that contrary force but he does allow it to exist and it does function And so we presently are torn between two kingdoms, as it were, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want to take it to the extent that Luther did, if any of you have studied Luther and his two kingdoms, but nonetheless, ultimately the kingdom of heaven will envelop and will become the kingdom of this world. And it is then when God's reign and rule is seen as it ought to be, and uh, as I've said time and again, it is our happy privilege on this earth to be God's servants by which his name becomes more and more magnified, more and more sanctified. That's why we're here. All right, let's uh, start on page 88. And I think we're, uh, we're looking now at the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. And by the way, we're, we're, the, the, the bottom line of this quick study on the kingdom of heaven is to ask ourselves, so what? Once we learn what it is, what will that mean to us? All right. The page 88 and the heading, The Kingdom of Heaven in Matthew. When we consider the various teachings of Yeshua and his apostles, we will understand the tension that exists between the present reality of the kingdom and its futuristic manifestations. In other words, the question is, is the kingdom here or is the kingdom coming? Do we now experience the kingdom of God? Or do we await the kingdom of God for the future? Yohanan Hamathbiel proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is approaching in our text that we're uh, we're studying. And Yeshua reiterates these words. In his Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom is described as yet future, when those who are righteous will be vindicated. Moreover, only those with genuine righteousness will even enter the kingdom. Right? He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of God. Now, if he's telling you you will not enter the kingdom of God, it sounds like the kingdom of God is yet to be entered. In describing his pattern pattern of prayers, Yeshua teaches his Talmudim to say, may your kingdom come, implying that it hasn't, and to rejoice in the inevitable victory of God's reign. In 721, Yeshua speaks about entering the kingdom, casting it as yet future. This future kingdom includes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with whom the citizens of the kingdom will dine, meaning that the resurrection has occurred when the kingdom comes. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not yet resurrected, apparently, or not that we know of. The gospel that Yeshua proclaimed is designated as the gospel of the kingdom, which he was teaching in the synagogues. Indeed, the imminent arrival of the kingdom was the core message of the gospel with which he commissions his Talmudim. And it will be that when the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the world, that the end will come. Now, what does that mean? That means today, if we're telling the gospel, it ought to be the gospel of the kingdom. I dare say, when you read the four spiritual laws, there's nothing about the kingdom there, or very little, Have we got the gospel message right? Or is there more than one gospel message? Did Yochanan Hamadbil preach one message, the message of the kingdom and Yeshua? And then he commissioned his apostles to teach another gospel? I don't think so. The essence of this gospel message is that the kingdom of God is approaching. In Matthew 18.3, Yeshua admonishes a childlike faith without which one will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Moreover, Entrance into the kingdom is not dependent upon one's social status, but upon genuine repentance and faithfulness. Even the tax collectors and prostitutes who repent and do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom. It seems quite possible that the transfiguration was a special revelation of the future kingdom, for Yeshua promised that some of his Talmudim would not die until they had seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Finally, at his final Pesach, Yeshua states that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he comes in his father's kingdom. These are examples of how the kingdom is portrayed in the future. Still, in other places, the kingdom of heaven or God is spoken of as already present. Most remarkably is the statement of our master in Matthew 12:28, But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In 1619, Yeshua gives the keys of the kingdom to his apostles, allowing them authoritative voice in kingdom matters. That would indicate that the kingdom was here. In 1912, Yeshua speaks of those who, quote, make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, which would suggest that the kingdom already existed. In Yeshua's judgment of some of the Pharisees, he judges them because they have, quote, shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, indicating that real access to the kingdom existed. More specifically, in the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, there are strong indicators that the kingdom had arrived. In offering the parable of the sower, Yeshua's Tamidim questioned him regarding his use of parables in general. His answer is that the mysteries of the kingdom had been revealed to those whom God had chosen and hidden from others. In the next parable, in which the enemy sows tares among the wheat, the implication is that the wheat represents the kingdom of God, which, though with an admixture of tares, is nonetheless present and not merely future. The same may be said of the mustard seed in leaven parables. In each of these, the primary point is that the kingdom of heaven will continue to grow until it envelops the whole world, which means it's growing now. Finally, the parables of obtaining objects of value, the treasure hidden in the field, a merchant sinking fine pearls, a net in the sea catching fish, emphasizes that the obtaining or getting is going on now by those who are citizens of the kingdom, but that the judgment of those things awaits the future. So, is the kingdom here or is it coming? We see then that in Matthew's gospel, the descriptions of the kingdom of heaven or God portray it as both a current reality as well as something that is yet coming in the future. John's gospel contains an oft-quoted text regarding the kingdom of God. Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Though often interpreted as meaning the kingdom of God is not connected to the physical world, this is hardly the meaning of the text. Yeshua's point is that the nations will be brought into subjection to his reign, not by the efforts of man, but by the direct sovereign work of God. His kingdom comes about by supernatural, that is, divine means. He's saying, look, if my kingdom were of this world, I would be amassing an army. I would be setting up uh, strongholds. I would be building fortresses. I would be digging in, preparing for battle. But my kingdom is not of this world in the sense that my kingdom has not come the way Caesar's kingdom came or the way Alexander the Great's kingdom came. That's not how my kingdom comes. My kingdom comes through supernatural power of the Almighty. Okay, question. Uh, The question is, is the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven synonymous with the new covenant? I wouldn't say that it's synonymous with the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, but it certainly is integral or the new covenant is integral to it. In other words, the the new covenant is the writing of the Torah upon the heart of of Israel. This is necessary for her to bow to the king. So the king does not receive the due that that he deserves until such time as the new covenant is established. And in the hearts of all in which the new covenant is established, he does receive his due. Can you see how wide and pervasive this concept is? I mean, we have so dissected theology in our, in our modern times. There, I mean, there's this controversy that has gone on, well, since the time of the Reformation and before. And that is, can you be saved, we're using the normal language, can you be saved and live like the devil? I mean, I, I'm putting it in the starkest of language. In other words, you know, here you are at a crusade, not the kind that killed the Jews, but the kind that's held in the kingdom and that kind of thing. A Billy Graham crusade or one of the other crusades. And there you are listening to the evangelist and something grips your heart and you say, I really need to say yes to God. So you go down front and you sign the little piece of paper and they give you a Bible and they lead you through the sinner's prayer. And then they turn you about and say, now you are saved from your sin. And then you go out and live the life you lived before. Well, maybe not exactly. Exactly. I mean, you try to clean things up a little bit, but essentially there's not much changed. Some would argue, look, if you said yes, as a matter of faith, that's it. Others would say, well, if you truly have faith, it's going to change the way you live. And if you don't change the way you live, you probably didn't have true faith, right? So there's been this battle going on in theology for a long time. But what is the purpose of your salvation? Why would God want to save you in the first place? I mean, somehow that that thought seems to escape people. Ultimately, his salvation of sinners is for his glory. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. So, why why would salvation have any traction, so to speak, in terms of its purpose, if you're saved but you never give God glory? That doesn't make any sense. And that's, you see, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that not only establishes the kingdom, but it's the gospel that defines the kingdom. That's when we say the gospel of the kingdom. What do we mean by that? Well, it's through the gospel that the kingdom is established. How so? Because through the gospel, people come to fully agree that God is king. They're given the power to live as though God is king. In other words, to obey his commandments. So it not only establishes the kingdom, but it defines the kingdom. All right. So why aren't we preaching the gospel of the kingdom? We tend to be preaching more often. What we hear preaching is the gospel of of fire insurance. Uh, Question, Ken. Yes, the question is, wouldn't the seed of the gospel be established at the time of the Torah? Absolutely. Well, because it's already and it's not yet. In other words, the kingdom of God in one sense exists in the life of each and every one who submits to God as king and who is brought into that covenant relationship with him. If you were alone on that South Sea island with, uh, you know, no one around and only a bottle and one cork and a piece of paper and you were trying to think what to write, and if you were still uh, doing everything you could to honor God, the kingdom of God would exist on that island. But is that is that the extent to which God intends the kingdom To show itself. No. What he intends is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Ultimately, he is the winner. He does gain the victory. Salvation does have the upper hand. Satan does not win, he doesn't spoil God's creative purposes. I mean, that, I'm, we're talking in the broadest of strokes here, but that's exactly what we have, is that God receives the glory, both in the punishment of the wicked and in the salvation of the righteous. And when everyone acknowledges that and can do nothing but acknowledge that, the kingdom of God has come to its completion, to its fullness. As I've used the illustration before, the concept of fulfilling in the Bible is a bit, uh, I think, misunderstood or hard to understand, I should say. I've used the illustrations of a Polaroid camera on the one hand and an artist with a brush and a palette of oil paints on the other. Some people think that fulfillment is like a Polaroid camera shot. You see a, a, a landscape. You, I know Polaroid cameras are old. Okay. <laughs> digital camera, whatever. Um, you, you, you pull up your camera, your digital camera. You snap the, the the shutter and boom, the picture is there. You have a one-to-one correspondence. Okay. And some people look at fulfillment that way. Here's what the prophet said. Okay? Landscape. Click the shutter. Here's the fulfillment. So I want prophecy A, event A. They go together. I put them on the shelf. We say that prophecy is fulfilled. Okay? That's one sense. Another sense is the idea of an artist setting up his easel, putting his canvas up, taking his his paints and his brush, and he looks out at that same landscape, and what does he do? He begins brush stroke by brush stroke to fill in the canvas and to reproduce the picture that he's seeing. Now, each stroke is a filling up of the picture. That is the biblical view of fulfillment. So when is the kingdom of God fulfilled? Is it fulfilled in each one of us because each of us are a stroke of the brush? Yes, but is the picture full? No, that kingdom is still coming. The completed picture is still coming and if you know if you 've watched a good artist uh, paint a landscape um, i've 've had the privilege of doing this a couple times, you wonder what in the world is that? you know you see you see some some large shapes, some, you know, and what he's filling in the background. And by the time he's done, he's got all the little details, and you realize, oh, that was a, that's a big bush. I wondered what that was going to be. And so sometimes we look at the overall fulfilling or filling up of the kingdom of God, and we wonder, how does this fit? Where does this go? How does this fit? But there's coming a time when all of this will be made clear. And that's what I think is, is, is the meaning when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we're, we'll talk about that, but at hand was 2,000 years ago. So how, how is that at hand? Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. I'm not sure I have satisfying answers, but at least I'll try to give you some. Examples of the kingdom of God in other apostolic texts. And I'm, obviously this is just a very brief survey. Paul uses the phrase kingdom of God in the conclusion of his chapter about forfeiting one's rights for the sake of another community member. He concludes, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that we're not going to be able to eat or drink in the kingdom of God? Well, I certainly hope not. I don't don't think that's at all what he means. What he means is, if you're squabbling over the kosher status of what this person is eating or what this person is drinking, and in the meantime you have severed your relationship with that person over peripheral issues, you need to stop and think what the kingdom of God really is. The kingdom of God does not exist in what you eat and drink. That is, if I eat the right foods I'm in and if I don't eat the right foods I'm not in. No, that's not it at all. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit of God. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't rules and commandments to follow. But I think particularly in Romans 14, he's talking about some man-made rules that were uh, becoming uh, points of division. Same thing can happen in our uh, circles, can't it? Where in Numbers 15 does it tell you how to tie tzitzit? doesn't tell you, right? just tells you to wear them. Now, some might say, well, it says in Deuteronomy on uh, uh, four corners of your garment. Okay, well, and good. So m- maybe we should, and uh, I would think we should try to have four four corners that That's a good idea. I mean, why not conform as much as we can? But it still doesn't tell us how to tie them. It still doesn't tell us what they look like so uh, or what color except for blue you know you 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 could have uh, undyed wool and it may may look kind of grayish or whatever the, My point is simply this: when somebody comes in with their jetsi different than ours, we shouldn't say, "Oh boy, you, you need to change those and then uh, uh, suddenly you be, you've caused offense, you've caused a division that's not necessary. There's nothing wrong with conformity to traditions, but traditions stand on a different level than God's absolute commandments. And we just have to constantly keep that in mind. And I think that's what he's talking about here in Romans 14. In other words, the demonstration of one's citizenship in the kingdom of God is best done through how we treat each other rather than our strict adherence to extra-biblical halacha. This is not a negation of traditions but a putting of them as secondary to the genuine needs of others. In a similar vein, Paul writes that the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power, meaning that walking in righteousness by the power of the Spirit is the true demonstration of God's rule and reign. This is evident among those who have been rescued from the domain of darkness and have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, something that is apparently a present reality as far as Paul is concerned. Indeed, he mentions by name some quote, who are workers for the kingdom. Yet Paul clearly teaches the coming of a yet future eschatological kingdom of God. He speaks of inheriting the kingdom. And he recognizes that the present sufferings for righteousness' sake will be judged as worthy for those who enter the kingdom. And that his own suffering would never cause his demise, but that God would rescue him out of every trouble and bring him safely, quote, to his heavenly kingdom. This phrase, heavenly kingdom, should most likely be understood in the light of the kingdom of heaven terminology. That is, the kingdom that is known by the rule of God. This future arrival of the kingdom is spoken of by John in the Apocalypse, for it is when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah that the reign of God is known to be eternal. The full realization of the kingdom is when the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, when the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come. Or, to reiterate the words of Yeshua, may your name be sanctified on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means, your kingdom come. What is, how will we know when his kingdom has come? When God's name is revered in all of the world as it is in heaven. May that happen soon in our lifetime and for all Israel. It is clear then when we take a survey of the kingdom language in the apostolic scriptures that the kingdom of heaven is indeed already and not yet. The kingdom has arrived in that the king has come and in his coming he has accomplished all that is necessary for the complete and full realization of the reign of God upon the earth. Yet such application of the accomplished reality is being worked out in the course of human history. By the way, that's paralleled in a number of uh, things in in the scriptures. Most central is the very death of Yeshua. When Yeshua died, he paid the penalty for the sins of all who would be saved. But they're not all saved at the moment that he died. The salvation that he procured or that he guaranteed for all who would believe, is, it's accomplished once and for all at the, at the cross, in the resurrection, the ascension, and the intercession of the Messiah. But it is applied to the individual in time, Through faith, through the uh, inner workings of the Spirit of God and so forth. So the accomplishment of the fact is not – it it guarantees the application of it, but it is not one and the same. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Yeshua in his first coming did all that was necessary to guarantee the success of the kingdom. And And in the meantime, the kingdom is being fulfilled, is being worked out.
0: This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com.
1: person and each place where the righteous reign of the Messiah is seen there the kingdom of God is known you know when when you study this doesn't it make you want to be a loyal subject of the king so that people would say if they knew anything about the kingdom of God they would say you know when i'm with you when i'm around you when i'm with your family i sense the kingdom of God here <laughs> that's that's what it's about the fullness of his reign will be marked by the salvation of israel For the kingdom, in its most basic sense, is the fulfillment of the covenant promises to the covenant people. The current expression of the kingdom of God, then, is likened to the first fruits which anticipates the final harvest. The first fruits are valid fruit. They are not reasonable facsimiles, but the genuine thing. Yet in terms of the complete harvest, this awaits the future when Messiah returns and reigns. We must conclude, then that the kingdom of heaven or God was taught by our master and his apostles as already existing, yet having future dimensions as well. In terms of God's all-pervasive providence, the kingdom was assured because the king had appeared and would accomplish everything necessary to bring about the kingdom's final and full expression. Yet the complete realization of the kingdom in all of its dimensions would await the end of days. All who would receive the king would enter the kingdom, but those who reject him would be cast out. In this way, the kingdom of heaven incorporates both the physical restoration of Israel and those who would join her through faith in her reigning King, Messiah. For in the end, Israel comes to repentance on a national scale, confessing the pierced One to be their King. And so, Reina, that's that's what we're talking about when the when we're when we're seeing the intersection of the kingdom of God and the establishment of the of the new covenant. The kingdom of heaven is thus neither entirely internal, that is, ethical, nor external, political, or geographical, but both. For the return of Israel to her land is in conjunction with her repentance and the establishment of the covenant on her behalf." You know, one of the, one of the differences between thinking, shall we say, if I can make these stark contrasts, thinking from a Greek perspective or from a, a Hebrew perspective, is that there's no problem with a both-and. The idea that the kingdom of heaven is entirely non-physical does not, uh, does not uh, click with a biblical perspective. God gave Israel a land, and in that land is a temple mount. And on that temple mount was built a temple by Solomon, and rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And at the dedication of Solomon's temple, God made a promise. He said, I'll put my name, and my ears, and my eyes here forever. Is is that what it means? So, you, you cannot separate the land from the people. And you can't separate the people from the covenant. And you can't separate God's kingdom from the people and the land and the covenant. It's all one package. When God created, he said it was good. And that's what he meant. The fact that sin entered in and spoiled what he had made good does not mean that he can't recreate. And for God, physicality is no problem. And in fact, he enjoys it and loves it. And you know how we know that for certain? It's because his own son took on physical form. So physicalness is is good in God's eyes. We really have to work hard to get over the, uh, the, um, the the doctrines of the emerging Christian church that wants us to think that you're far more holy the less you are connected with physical things. You know, so when I drive up in my new Beamer, just praise, you know, say a bracha, and I know I wouldn't do that. <laughs> think how many books you could buy for a BMW. Okay. <laughs> So the rule and reign of God is thus seen in its fullness when the Torah is written on the heart, which results in outward obedience to the word of the king. There's our new covenant. What is future is the national expression of this new covenant in the descendants of Jacob. The present expression of the kingdom of heaven is the believing remnant who have participated in the new covenant already as the first fruits of the eventual harvest. Now, what are the implications of this for us? And they're very broad but important. It should first of all arrest our attention that the gospel proclaimed by Yeshua and commissioned to his apostles is called the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he told his disciples to go about telling. Go, speak forth the gospel of the kingdom. From this we should understand that the good news proclaimed by Yeshua and his talmidim, or disciples, was at its core kingdom-centered. This has vast implications for our understanding of what the gospel is and what it entails. First, contrary to the primary emphasis in our day, the gospel is not ultimately an individual reality. That is to say, while the salvation procured by Yeshua through his death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession is indeed a salvation of individuals from the condemnation of their sins and comes to each individual on the basis of having been individually chosen to salvation and given the gift of personal faith, This salvation nonetheless brings each individual into a kingdom under the rule and reign of the Messiah. Thus, acceptance of the good news is at the same time an acceptance of a new citizenship, which brings the believer into a covenant relationship with God as well as with all other members of the kingdom. All who are born from above through the the work of the Spirit in the life-changing regeneration of the soul become members of an established kingdom of heaven in which the present reign of Messiah is evident through their obedience to him. And I would, you know, the notion that salvation is merely a personal, individual soul response to God leaves out the ultimate goal of God's saving grace, that is, his intention to establish a kingdom of people who have a corporate identity as his loyal subjects. The kingdom of heaven is not restricted then to the vertical relationship of the individual to his Savior, but equally finds expression in the relationship between each other. You cannot say you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven if, number one, you don't care about the king's rules. Rules are good. Rules are, are our comfort. Rules are those things which let us know who we are and what we're supposed to do. But if we, don't, if we don't highly prize the commandments of our master, of our king, then we don't highly prize him. Why do you call me master, master, and what? Not do what I say. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, why do you call me master, master, and not agree with my doctrinal statement? He doesn't say that, does he? It isn't that he's not concerned about what we think or what we consider to be true. He is very concerned about that. But the fruit of doing what we know to be true is the proof of our faith. Secondly, the kingdom of God as the primary expression of the gospel cannot ignore the fact that the national expression of the people of Israel is both the first expression of this kingdom and the foundation of it. Do you think the kingdom of God started when Yeshua came on the scenes? No! The kingdom of God was in force from the beginning. That Yeshua expresses intention to go first to the lost sheep of Israel shows that any definition of the kingdom of God that excludes the divine prerogative to remain faithful to the physical seed of Jacob is wrong-headed. Rather than forsaking Israel or redefining Israel in platonic overtones of the ideal, what I mean by that is saying, oh, the the kingdom of God is not physical, it's only non-physical. The kingdom of God is not outward, it's only inward. That's uh, Plato for us, and, uh, and Gnosticism. That's not how the Bible reads. The kingdom of God is the rule of God upon this earth. It, rather than taking that view, Yeshua and his apostles considered the covenant promises made to the physical offspring of Jacob as the foundational elements of the kingdom of God. Indeed, the presence of the Shekinah, the glory of God, in the tabernacle was the expression of God's rule and reign as Israel's king. That the cherubim are designated in terms reminiscent of a throne upon which the king sits. Shows that his throne was integral to his covenant presence among the chosen people of Israel. How is God uh, referred to in the the list of uh, references I give you there? The one enthroned upon the cherubim. Where are the cherubim? They're on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is his throne. His kingship is recognized through the establishment of his covenant. And we see that the eschatological or last day's victory of God as promised by the prophets incorporates the same imagery. God reigns forever in Zion. Not in Seattle. Not in Rome. Why? Why couldn't he reign in some other city? Because his kingdom is founded first and foremost with the people that he chose out of all the nations called Israel. That was his doing. He has the right to do that. He could have chosen the Italians. He could have chosen the Canaanites. He could have. He could have made them his people. He could have given them his laws. He didn't. Why? Does the pot say to the potter, why have you made me this way? That was his sovereign choosing. Out of his own love, out of his own desire, he chose a small nation which had nothing to give him in order that they might, that we might be trophies of what he can make out of nothing. That was his, that was his doing. He has placed his name, his eyes, and his heart there forever. It is from Jerusalem that his future reign in the millennial kingdom via his chosen Messiah emanates. And it is thus in the context of a regathered, united Israel, worshiping in accordance with the Torah of Moses, that his kingship is ultimately seen. The kingdom of heaven, therefore, cannot be separated from the chosen people of Israel and her inevitable future blessing by the sovereign hand of God." Any message of the gospel that fails to incorporate God's clear intention to save Israel at the end of days is therefore vastly deficient. Moreover, that the gospel of the kingdom would go to all the nations makes it clear that the salvation of those chosen from the nations does not eventuate in a second kingdom or one that replaces God's reign in Zion, contrary to the dispensationalists. Rather, the redeemed ones from the nations join Israel as members of God's established kingdom. Yeshua emphasized this when he taught that, quote, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He also said that he had many sheep who were not presently part of his flock, but that he would bring them nonetheless, and they would all form one flock with one shepherd. The gospel of the kingdom is therefore a call to join an entity already in existence, not a call to initiate and construct a new kingdom which had not previously existed. Do you see? If you think I'm, I'm a little excited about this, I, I think this is su- such a core reality that we oftentimes don't speak of. H- how could the gospel become crafted in such a way as to replace Israel? When Israel is the place of God's kingship. I mean, Paul realized it couldn't be. In fact, Paul goes so far as to, he sticks his neck out and, and seems to indicate, at least in, in some emphasis, that while God always envisioned the salvation of the chosen from the nations, and that was his purpose from the beginning to Abraham, he said, in your seed, or in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. From Paul's perspective, what is the ultimate uh, one of the ultimate purposes of the salvation of the, of the Gentiles? In order to bring about the salvation of Israel. Even the salvation of the Gentiles has as one of its primary purposes the salvation of Israel. And any gospel that neglects that neglects an essential part of what God is doing in the gospel. Thirdly, the message of the gospel of the kingdom incorporates the message of the king's established and revealed commandments. The good news is not merely that of escape from condemnation, though this is a most wonderful and foundational aspect of the gospel, but also a call to submit to the king's teachings. Think of it this way. Let's say that there's a man who has committed murder and he's incarcerated and he's on death's row and he's waiting the day of his execution. And in the last hour, the news comes that the governor has given him a stay of execution and that he's free to go. If there's been no change in his heart, we don't know what he would do. But if there's been any change in his heart, I guarantee he's not going to go out and murder again. That's Paul's point. If you really have been born from above, there's a change in you. You have died, and you've risen anew in the Messiah. And his commandments and his ways are not burdensome to you. (laughs) There's not a thing that, oh, I've got to do that again. No, it's not at all. You've had a change. Why? Because you've been granted pardon. The apostles are instructed to teach the future members of the kingdom to observe all that I commanded you. Membership in the kingdom of heaven requires submission to the rule and reign of the king. Thus, the message of the gospel must include not only the glory of forgiveness based upon the infinite and unfailing grace of God and Messiah, but also the message of sanctification, that is, the requirement to pursue holiness as befits those who claim kingdom identity and who are endowed with the sanctifying presence of the Spirit. This is because the gospel of the kingdom is, at its heart, a message incorporating a covenant relationship with the king. All too often in our day, the gospel is truncated to include only the message of forgiveness without mention of what characterizes the lives of true citizens of the kingdom. You see, that's why it's not the gospel of the kingdom. Many times the gospel that's given has no sense of kingdom. It's individualized. It gives you a chance to not have to pay for your sins. End of story. It fails to reckon with the fact that you give up the citizenship to this world and you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Such a synthetic gospel fails to produce members of the kingdom because it it is not the message of the king. Rather, this anemic gospel has resulted in the establishment of man-made kingdoms where the rule of Messiah is hardly evident or is entirely eclipsed in the bright lights of Hollywood Christianity. I dare say that there are many kingdoms being built, but I don't see a whole lot of them that reflect the kingdom of God. I see the kingdom of this evangelist, or a kingdom of this uh, important person. Fourthly, the fact that the gospel is kingdom-centered is a source of great confidence. The king is the one who establishes his kingdom, and it is therefore an inevitability. This is portrayed in the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, where what appears to be something insignificant or small, a mustard seed, a pinch of leaven, eventually grows large and encompasses the whole. When Yeshua stated that, I will build my kehilah, Ecclesia their assembly. He is proclaiming that he is the one who will establish his kingdom. While he graciously assigns to his disciples the task of proclaiming the gospel, that the success of its message is in his hands. You see, contrary to those who rail against sovereign grace, it is sovereign grace that is the fuel for evangelism. The idea that, well, if you believe that God chose people or God elected people and that God saves people sovereignly, you're just going to twiddle your thumbs and go off and, no, 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 no. It's not at all. What God has said is the victory has been won. The success is inevitable. Would you like to be part of the success? Yeah, okay. Then go tell my good news. You're guaranteed. I mean, what kind of a sales position would it be if you went and took a sales position and your sales manager said, oh, by the way, all of your sales have already been guaranteed for today. Right? It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. You see, when we plant the seed of the gospel, we don't have to concern ourselves with whether the way we said it or when we said it or how we said it. If it's going to make the difference between that person's eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, we don't have to be concerned with that. It is God's doing to build his kingdom. We simply scatter the seed. He's the one that brings the increase. That gives us great confidence. We can go to places that we think, oh, we, I think there are all for us places where we would have some fear and trepidation about going and sharing the gospel. I remember the first time I was at the Kabad house and someone asked me, where do you daven? And I was confronted at that point. What are you going to say? And the thought flashed through my mind. The gospel is the power that results in salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, I can be bold. So if I'm kicked out of my ear, so if I'm told not to come back, it's not my problem. The kingdom is secure. Isn't there great confidence in that? In a day when you don't know when the stocks are going to go up or down, you don't know where the tariffs are going to be and what they're going to do, you don't know where the economy is going to go, you don't know any of those things, but you know this for certain. The king is on his throne. The kingdom is secure. And that has to be part of the gospel that we preach, that we teach, that we live out, that we talk to other people. Say, you know, the kingdom is secure. It has been finished. It's done. The king died and has raised from the dead. He is reigning and he's coming again. That's the power of evangelism. See, the father is the one who draws the elect into the fold. The Spirit is the one who opens the eyes and ears and plants the seeds of faith in the heart to receive the good news. Yeshua is the one who secures the success of His redeeming sacrifice through His high priestly intercession. Everything He prays for, He gets. The kingdom is already established and His success and victory over all other rulers and kingdoms is secure. Yeshua demonstrated this by casting out demons, showing that no obstacle can stand in the way of His ultimate and final reign as God's rightful King. Therefore, as his servants and disciples, we may proclaim the message of the kingdom without fear, for the gospel is itself the power resulting in salvation to all who believe. For it is the good pleasure of the Father to use the message of the gospel to accomplish his sovereign design to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Finally, that the concept of a kingdom is at the heart of the gospel message helps us define the ultimate destination of our spiritual existence and journey. We are not in the process of preparing for some ethereal existence in a celestial city, but we are rather anticipating the rule of Messiah in Jerusalem. Our focus upon living in accordance with God's Torah today is a fitting preparation for life in the physical presence of the reigning Messiah in Zion. The kingdom of heaven will find its ultimate expression in the physicality of a temple on a well-known piece of real estate called the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Realizing that the kingdom is the core element of the gospel dismisses the idea that the goal of our salvation is to escape from this world. Rather, our purpose as citizens of the kingdom is to prepare ourselves for the future reign of our Messiah in this world. In this regard, our message is exactly the same as that of Yochanan Hamatbil. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming right to the city near you. But we send forth this message, not only in word, but also in deed. Our business is to sanctify his name upon the earth, to let everyone everywhere everywhere know who the king actually is, and to admonish them to submit to his present reign and prepare for his future appearance as the enthroned king. While we bask in the blessings of our own citizenship and the benefits afforded us as subjects of the king of kings, we nonetheless realize that as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, it is not ultimately about us, what about him? And, and Paul just says this over and over again in the first chapter of Ephesians. Why did he choose you to the glory of his grace? Why did he save you to the praise of the glory of his grace? I remember a friend of mine. He was from Switzerland, and he was uh, atheist. Still, maybe as far as I know, I don't know. And he told me. He said, "You know, why I can't believe in your God." I said, "Why? Because he's he's arrogant." So why do you say that? He said, well. Don't you believe that he created everything for his own glory? I said, yeah. That's arrogant. I said, no, that's God. That's God. He is the one that deserves the glory. It is therefore our primary desire that his name be magnified through our words and our actions. All right. Verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight the work of Yohanan Hamad Beel is here explained as fulfilling the prophetic words of Isaiah the prophet. In the Gospel of Matthew, he names Isaiah six times, and except for our present text, all are in connection with the ministry of Yeshua. Three of the quotes from Isaiah pertain to Yeshua's role as the suffering servant of the Lord who brings salvation, while the final two are given as a rebuke for Israel's blindness to the message of the Gospel. The current text is the sole example of a quote from the Tanakh, that is the sole example in Matthew, I should say, that is not introduced with a fulfillment formula, which would be something like in order that it might be fulfilled, so forth. Some have suggested that this is to indicate that Matthew did not see Yochanan as the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy but only as aligning with the general thrust of it but carson is right when he says it goes too far however to say that the omission of a fulfillment language means that for matthew john the baptist does not fulfill scripture but serves merely as a prototypical christian preacher if matthew had wanted to say so little he would have been better off eliminating the old testament passage his point is that he says this is he's doing this yokanon is crying in the wilderness Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Well, it's in fulfillment of or it's in relationship to the the verse in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And we might call this Pesher style. Pesher in uh, uh, rabbinic Hebrew or mishneic Hebrew means uh, and the meaning is. And we find this throughout the Qumran scrolls. For instance, in Habakkuk, uh, the book of Habakkuk, you have a verse or a line and then the word Pesher and then their commentary, or their explanation, or their interpretation. So he says, for this is the one, in other words, this is the one that is referred to by Isaiah. The meaning of Isaiah's verse is, in some measure, relating to John the Baptist, hamath Hamatbil, meaning that one commonly held application of the prophetic text was to apply it to yokanan 's ministry. For instance, in the uh, rule of the community scroll, in Qumran, uh, Section 8, lines 12 through 14. These are the ones that have left the perverse society of Jerusalem and taken up residence in the desert. And this is reckoned as a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, the, the verse that we have. We read in the Qumran text, When such men as these come to be in Israel, conforming to these doctrines, they shall separate from the session of perverse men to go to the wilderness, there to prepare the way of truth, as it is written, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that the Qumran Society used that same text. And where were they? Out in the desert, right? They found themselves out in the desert. They said it's time for us to separate from Jerusalem and the perverseness of this city and go out in the desert. And what are we supposed to do when we're out there? We're supposed to prepare a straight way for the coming of God's uh, kingdom and Messiah. Well, sounds like John was kind of doing the same thing. Question? The question is: Were these the Essenes? Uh, most people think so. Yeah, most the, the people who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, whomever they were, most people think that they were the Essenes or some um, sect of the Essenes. There may have been more than one, uh, but yeah, they were they were the uh, super holiness crowd of first century Judaism's. I mean, they they were separatists to the max. The parallel account in Mark combines Malachi three one and Exodus 23:20 with the quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Both Matthew and Luke also use a similar combination later on in their Gospels in connection with the appearance of Yohanan. Now, just quickly, let's look at this quote. We can see that there are some differences... Matthew's quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, conforms exactly to the wording of Mark, which likewise follows the Septuagint with several slight modifications. If you just look at the chart, the Hebrew reads, A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. So do you see that in the wilderness modifies what? It modifies the place where the way of the Lord is going to be made or cleared, right? And that, that makes it parallel to the next phrase, Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. However, the Septuagint takes in the wilderness to be the place where the one is crying. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. And uh, Matthew and Mark uh, leave out our God at the end and, and make the uh, idea of way, highway in the Hebrew, they make it plural paths. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths rather than Make straight the paths of God. So there's not a huge difference there. However, the Septuagint reading makes more sense for John. I mean, he's out in the wilderness. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, right, is just how the Septuagint reads. The Hebrew reads, A voice is crying, Make a way in the desert, in the wilderness for the Lord. Go down to the bottom of the page. I'll let you, you can work on that more if you'd like. the original context of Isaiah 40 is one of comfort to the Babylonian exiles. They are to take courage and be hopeful, for God has not abandoned them, but is making a way for their return to the land. By the way, if you haven't read recently the Book of Comfort, which is Isaiah 40 through 48, uh, if you haven't read the last half of Isaiah, wow. You know, I, I started reading it to kind of get the context of Isaiah 40 verse 3. It is powerful. It is so powerful how God is saying to Israel, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring you in ways you can't imagine. Oh, I mean, he, he describes it in some wonderful poetic ways in that passage. Anyway, the obstacles that stand in their way are being removed, and the road home is being prepared. But the book of Comfort, which begins with Isaiah 40, does not only have the immediate needs of the exiles in view, for it foresees not only the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, as well as the restoration of the temple, but also the gathering of the nations who anxiously await the Torah of God. I think that's one of the most fantastic verses in this section. Then the islands which wait expectantly for your Torah, he will come. Isaiah 42, just... um, Rough paraphrase. Moreover, the book of Comfort contains the promise of the suffering Messiah by whose stripes Israel is healed, for he would bear upon himself their transgressions. The regathering of the exiles is thus just the beginning of an eschatological restoration of Israel that would never again be exiled and everlasting peace would be realized. So ver- chapter 40 is is directed to the exiles who are saying, don't worry, you're, you're going home, you're going back. But... By the time you get done with this last section of Isaiah, you realize it's not just that the exiles are going home. This is a story that is going to eventuate in eternity. This is an unending piece. It's a a much bigger picture. It is this overarching picture of Isaiah's book of comfort that is the background for Matthew's use of Isaiah 40, verse 3. For the covenant blessings that would come upon Israel are all based upon the work of the servant of the Lord who would accomplish Israel's final redemption, bringing upon her the covenant blessings And Yochanan was functioning as the prophet, proclaiming his arrival. I note the next paragraph that it's interesting that that some of the rabbinic texts use Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4 in the same way. Combine them with the coming of Messiah. Next paragraph. Obviously, for Matthew and the other gospel writers, the dawning of this eschatological time of fulfillment had arrived with the appearance of Yeshua. And Yochanan's message of repentance in light of the coming kingdom signaled the beginning of the eschaton. That millennia have passed since the days of Yochanan and the Messiah does not diminish the reality of Yochanan's message. For the Almighty, a thousand years is as a day. Yeshua came as the suffering servant to accomplish everything necessary to bring about the eternal redemption of his people. Though from a human perspective, time languishes in anticipation of the fulfillment. From God's perspective or point of view, the redemption of his chosen ones is right on schedule. We should also note in regard to Matthew's use of Isaiah 43 that while in its original context it applies to the work of yod its application to Yochanan and thus to Yeshua as the one whose way is being prepared marks a common theme among the gospel writers and apostles. Namely, that Yeshua is Emmanuel, God with us. You see what I'm saying? In Isaiah 40, who's talking? yod Adonai. He says, make straight the way of Adonai in the desert. Make a path for God, for our God. And who is Matthew applying this to? He's applying it to Yeshua. Yokanan is in the desert saying he's coming. He's on his way. Prepare, get ready. Well, who and then he quotes Isaiah 43 40 verse 3 as an as, as a fulfillment. He's he's not making a difference. Yeshua is the divine one incarnate. As much as that boggles our minds, You see, the the Gospel writers neither try to explain this mystery, nor do they deny it or seek to diminish its force. As Carson notes, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, the way of the Lord is being made straight. In Matthew, it is the way of Jesus. This sort of identification with Jesus, with the Lord, is common in the New Testament. And he gives quotes in the New Testament of Old Testament passages. In the New Testament or in the Apostolic Scriptures applied to Yeshua, Whereas in the in the Tanakh applied to Yod Vav this confirms the kingdom as being equally the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Yeshua. While the deity of Messiah is only implicit in such texts, it certainly goes beyond Yeshua being merely a royal envoy. So how is it that the way for the coming one would be prepared in the desert? Was he actually going to take caterpillars out there and straighten everything out? You know, the Midrash in the in the the Midrash in the Sages is on Deuteronomy 12. 1210, I think, where it says uh, 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 broaden the borders of the land. And the sages say, well, how, would, how could you broaden the borders of the land? And they think to themselves, oh, I know. Uh, a lot of Israel is, is hills and valleys. So they immediately go to Isaiah 40 and say he's going to flatten out all the valleys and he's going to f- flatten out all the hills. Well, he said this is like a Torah scroll. When you see it all wrapped up in its cover, it looks like a small thing, but when you see it all unwrapped, it's huge. So when everything gets straightened out in the land, it's going to be a lot bigger than it it is now. I mean, they're being a little facetious, but they're trying to understand. But so how is it that the way is prepared? It's not in terms of physically making a road. The imagery of Isaiah 40 is the arrival of the Holy One coming through the desert who would affect the salvation of Israel. As the king, only a perfect road would, would be fit for his travel. The preparation is understood by Matthew and apparently by Yochanan as that of people, not of roads. Personal preparation, meaning repentance and sanctification, is the preparation befitting the king. So that's why we see the uh, application of the Isaiah text to to Yochanan. He's calling the people, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, get ready, prepare yourself. This preparation is preparation for the coming king.
0: You've been listening to the commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.